Welcome to the Moving Forward podcast. Today we have Jamie Paul with us. Say hi, Jamie. Hi there. How's it going? Great. Uh, nice to talk to you again. Jamie actually was on the podcast something like about a year ago, I think it was, back when Corey was co-hosting each episode with me. Is that right, Jamie? Right. Yeah, it was uh, last summer. Anyway, uh, he's um, you guys probably know him as as one of the OG Yangsters. I remember him from back when Yang's Facebook group only had like a few hundred members in it or something. <laughs> I think uh, Jamie Jamie told me off air that um, when he started following Andrew Yang on Twitter, he only had eight thousand followers. So that gives you a sense of how OG Jamie is. Um, and he's a UBI advocate. Uh, and he he writes a blog, which I highly recommend, called American Dreaming. So I definitely recommend you guys go check that out. You want to give him the domain, Jamie? Yeah, it's americandreaming.substack.com. So we are going to talk about a specific blog that uh, Jamie published the other day. Uh, he tagged me and Aaron uh, from Three Right Turns in it when he posted it on Twitter. And it is an extremely well-written, very well-thought-out blog called uh, Why I Am Not a Populist. So I'm actually going to ask Jamie to read it on the air like um, uh, Adam Hallisey from The Progressive Brief did a few episodes back, because that seems to have worked pretty well. Give everybody a sense of what we're talking about before we riff on it. But first, let's just catch up for a second. Um, sure. Well, first of all, uh, what's what's new in your life? <laughs> <laughs> since we talked last uh, i just feel like the pandemic is like slowly you know eroding my my spirit you know it's just like all these long months of having a disrupted life is start, you know definitely starting to take its toll i think yeah i'm getting some pandemic fatigue too my um yeah. wife and i usually host a big party at least like once a month and obviously, it's been over a year since we've been able to have even one. <laughs> so mm -hmm. my social yeah. life is a bit is a bit of a mess. Uh, I'm yeah. definitely at looking for the very beginning of the pan. Sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say at the very beginning of the pandemic, you know, there was a lot of like chatter online about, you know, the quote unquote revenge of the introverts. But I feel like the longer this has gone on, a lot of people realize they weren't quite as introverted as they thought they were. You That's know, true. People, and people and some, really need, do need more human interaction, I think. Yeah, I've definitely talked to a few introverts who are kind of worried, a little scared about what's going to be like when things go back to normal. But I, I think in the long term, this might actually end up being a good thing for our culture. I think it'll be really good that more people are working remotely. Um, you know, the, the, the rise of automation and the the fact that so many high paying jobs only exist in big cities, just um, something that Yang wrote about in, right. uh, in his book, right? So right. that issue is, I think, going to be largely resolved by the fact that a lot of companies are going to continue to let people work remotely and um, even not live nearby. And if that's the case, what will happen is, you know, the demand for housing in big city centers will go down and uh, the property values in small towns will go up. So a lot of these ghost towns will get gentrified, which I think is a good thing. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe like the cost of living in the U.S. will level out a little bit more. I think it's always good to have options. You want to have less expensive places and more expensive places. But it's a bit crazy when there are thousands of towns in the flyover states where the property is practically valueless 
And then right. people pay $10,000 a month to rent somebody's basement in San Francisco. It's just a little skewed, you might, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you might say. Decoupling good jobs from specific geographical locations can definitely do a lot to, you know, in time, equalize a lot of things in society. Yeah, exactly. It's it's uh, shifting the incentive structures. Uh, right. Very, very Yangian thing. So in the long term, I'm hopeful, but I definitely have some pandemic fatigue. Before we get into the um, meat of the conversation, I'm going to start the episode by reading a review from one of you listeners out there. This is from Angel7297. Enjoying the podcast since day one. Keep it going. Don't stop till Andrew Yang is in the Oval Office. Well, yeah, he's about to be mayor <laughs> of New York, it looks like. He's the front runner in the Democratic primary last I checked. Is that right? Is that still true, Jamie? Yeah, uh, pretty much every poll shows him you know, clearly in the lead. So if he does become mayor of New York, that certainly puts him that much closer to the Oval Office. One of the biggest critiques of him in the primary was that he didn't have enough government experience. And I think running one of the largest cities in the world, which would be like, what, the the 11th biggest country by itself, something like that, uh, certainly yeah, gives him a lot of executive experience. Yep. All right. So uh, before I ask you to read the blog, you want to just tell us a little bit about why you started writing the blog? How long has it been up? Like, What's the general concept of, yeah. of that website? Well, I've been writing nonfiction online for probably 12 years, but I've been writing it on these sort of small time websites that no one really goes to just kind of, you know, almost as a journal, just writing my thoughts about various things. And I decided about a month and a half ago to branch out in a more public way, you know, to try to get my uh, my writing a little bit more exposure. So I, I created a Substack blog and I basically write about whatever I feel like. It mostly centers around politics, policy social commentary, cultural commentary, stuff like that. Well, as I said, I highly recommend it. American Dreaming. You want to say the URL one more time for our listeners? Yeah, it's americandreaming.substack.com. Yeah, it's it's really great. It's great. And you, you really have a way of, with words. Do you study writing or what, what's your background there? Uh, well, I went to school way back when for film. Uh, and I did a lot of writing. Oh, you know, me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but really my, you know, it took after I graduated for me to realize I really liked writing more than filmmaking. So, you know, I, I've been writing a lot over the years, but never in any sort of professional capacity. But I feel like I've honed it just from doing it a lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I can tell you studied it and or either that or you're some kind of savant. So it makes sense. Um, yeah, it's a terrific blog. Very thought provoking. All right. So as I said, the other day, he posted this this piece called Why I Am Not a Populist. And anybody who's been listening to me complain about populism for the last year and a half. And I should point out a lot of my uh, left leaning co-hosts also complain about populism. So it's not it's not just me <laughs> doing it. What's your uh, where would you put yourself on the political spectrum, Jamie? You know, I really try to stay away from labels, but any, you know, any uh, objective look at me would definitely say I'm on the left. Uh, if there is such a thing as the libertarian left, I suppose I'm on it, you know, without being any kind of anarchist or anything like that. I can see a case for for calling Andrew Yang something like a libertarian leftist. Um, yeah, I would say libertarian center leftist, maybe like he wants to. Yeah. I don't know, even know if I would say ex 
expand the welfare state. I would prefer to say reform the welfare state, which would put him more on the center or maybe even the center right from my perspective. But yeah. I think he's definitely um, relatively libertarian in comparison to a lot of the other options out there in the mainstream. That's for sure. We can agree about that. Yeah. And um, yeah. and I can understand people characterize. I think part of what's so great about, the, about UBI is it really does thread the needle between both left wing, both center left and center right goals, you know, at the right. same time. Um, so I think, I guess you could describe him either way, depending on your reason for supporting him. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, over the last few years, I've definitely made an effort to get less ideological, less tied to like, you know, supporting something because it's on one quote unquote side or opposing it because it's on the quote other side. Uh, and you know, I really have, uh, it, you know, it's impossible to fully become untribal. But I feel like if you make the effort, it is worth it. You know, if you make an effort to try to scale that down, you really can. It, it, it frees the way you could think about things, I think. Yeah, that's very noble and certainly in the spirit of this podcast. So. Right. All right. So, Jamie, if you're ready, take it away. Okay. Why I'm oh, not start, a start Start with the title, though. Oh, well, you <laughs> did, and I cut you off. All right. I'm going to shut it down. No problem. Uh, why I am not a populist. The problem with populism, left or right, isn't that the grievances it animates itself around are bogus. Mass immigration, income inequality, lack of accountability, globalization, the decline of two-parent households, the undemocratic flaws of democratic systems, the increase in suicides and deaths of despair, and the decline of the middle class, to name just a few, these are legitimate concerns for people to have. It doesn't make one a fascist to be concerned about the unprecedented flow of foreign populations into one's country. It doesn't make one a socialist to be concerned about extreme income inequality. It doesn't make one religious to be concerned about the superficiality of modern life and how our materialistic consumerism is fundamentally unfulfilling. And it doesn't make one a social conservative to be concerned about the disintegration of family life. These are real issues that deserve serious attention. So what's wrong with populism then? I suppose I should pause to define populism in the interest of clarity. The term has come to mean different things to different people. I define modern populism as political movements or attitudes that incorporate most, though not necessarily all, of the following. Anti-establishment sentiment, anti-elite sentiment, anti-intellectualism, conspiratorial thinking, veneration of the, uh, of the wisdom of the common person, protest movements, and most, uh, most essentially, scapegoating. Populism is the politics of victimhood. It paints the problems in people's lives and in society as the product of the nefarious machinations of some other group. Populism categorically eschews the role of personal responsibility, culture, and distributed phenomena that arise organically and through no one's connivance. Wouldn't you know it, but you aren't responsible for the problems in your life. They are. Look at what they've done to you, what they've taken from you. It is a political worldview which completely relinquishes the agency of the individual. Populism encourages its adherents to embrace impotence. The system is rigged against you. It's not your fault. It's theirs. This kind of absolution of responsibility can be psychologically comforting, but it can, lead, uh, but it can also lead to some dark places. Finger-pointing at other groups in society, pinning the problems on them, and blaming them for ruining it for everyone is textbook populism. One can effectively grow a large movement with a high degree of in-group solidarity by orienting against a common enemy. In politics, the single most important choice you make is in choosing your enemies. The ideal enemies are abstract. Systems, ideas, conventions, attitudes, etc. Populist energy cannot confine itself to such amorphous targets. Antipathy towards systems invariably becomes antipathy towards those who support them. 
opposition to certain ideas or norms quickly bleeds into vitriol and then bigotry against the people deemed responsible for creating, upholding, or benefiting from them at everyone else's expense. By harnessing pure emotion and victimhood grievances, then projecting blame onto the other, populism destroys the crucial barrier between ideas and people. In populism, that distinction does not long survive. It's not a slippery slope to scapegoating. It's a sheer cliff. Scapegoating becomes dehumanization and bigotry. We know where this leads. Populism's analysis of society collapses its complexity. It offers simple, easy-to-understand diagnoses for the problems and equally easy solutions. It's politics made easy. Populism can never see a system with flaws, only one rotten to the core and in need of being torn down entirely. Fixing problems within an existing framework is tricky, laborious work. Easier just to smash everything. Understanding the reasons and solutions to societal problems is complicated because everything is interconnected with a thousand moving parts. Easier just to blame someone else for everything. Populism teaches people that the system is so hopelessly rigged against them that they have no power, except the power to support a strong leader who can fix everything for them. Don't you wear your pretty little heads. Daddy's here, and he'll get rid of those nasty monsters under your bed. Populism is the have-nots, or the aggrieved, being whipped up against the quote-haves, usually led by a figure who themselves squarely fits in the latter category, but plays the traitor to their own class. These leaders promise their followers the world, but their plans are either light on substance or entail no real plan for how they could be enacted or achieved. If you want to end any conversation with a populist, ask them for some specifics. Ask them how it, how it would work to actually overthrow the system or take the country back logistically. Ask them how, in real terms, it would be politically achieved. Some left-of-center readers may take umbrage at my grouping left and right populism together in this critique. This is based on the notion that the problem with demonization is when the, quote, wrong or undeserving group gets demonized, that it's wrong when right populists demonize welfare moms or immigrants, but fine when left populists demonize wealthy business owners. I fundamentally disagree. The problem with demonization isn't only when the wrong people get demonized. The problem with demonization is demonization. Riling up people against some subset of society is an inherently zero-sum, divisive, unwieldy, difficult-to-control force. It can only destroy. It cannot build. And just on a factual level, it doesn't make sense. Nearly everything in the world is multifactorial. It is extraordinarily unlikely that any one group can truly be said to be ruining things for everyone. Scapegoating is cancer for society. If you think a particular populist movement doesn't contain some element of scapegoating, either you don't understand what modern populism is, or you don't know scapegoating when you see it. Populism is an engine of division masquerading as solidarity. It is demagoguery and scapegoating in the name of justice. And it is authoritarianism masquerading as a call for real democracy. We should fix the problems of society to make our countries more democratic, to change the culture where it needs changing, to pass better laws and abolish unjust ones, and to evolve our policies and social norms alike in ways more conducive to flourishing and well-being. And yes, to be more prudent, responsible, thoughtful, and conscientious as individuals. At no point in this process should we succumb to otherism, group hostility, identity politics, victimhood narratives, or the allure of strong men or women who promise to fix all our problems. We should reject populism. And that's it. Yeah, really, really well put. Um, I was inspired by it because I've been trying to, gosh, I don't know if you were listening all that time ago to me over the course of several months persuading 
Corey that populism was bad. And at some point it just clicked and he was like, oh, that's what you mean by populism. Right. <laughs> You're right. That is bad. You know what I mean? It's obviously much simpler to just think that populism is a synonym for the word popular, right? And certainly right. if you listen to a populist politician, they always say that they represent the people. Um, right. That's actually a starting point for me. Uh, I, I took uh, several notes on your blog that I'm going to ask you about in, um, in specifics. But first, I want to ask you about this particular interest of mine. It's like par- part of what I dislike about the populist narrative, and I call it the populist myth because I think it's demonstrably untrue, mm-hmm. is this idea that the people all have the same goals and priorities, right? It's a fundamentally undemocratic idea because the whole point of democracy is that the people don't all agree about everything, which is why you have to compromise and find consensus and work together on solutions that aren't going to please anybody 100%, but hopefully will please most people enough, right? Right. And so this whole idea that like the people all want this and the only reason we don't have it is because some cabal of secret Mm -hmm. Jewish space Nazis is trying to stop you or whatever, right? Right, right. It's just not true. The reason that we don't have everything we want is because it's impossible for everyone to get everything we want because we're individuals, if you if you zoom out wide enough, everyone does have the same fundamental views. Like everyone wants their kids to have good schools and everyone wants to flourish in society and for there to be good jobs and et cetera. But it's the, the moment you start getting into specifics is when, you know, people start to disagree. Uh, so, you know, ultimately the way to circumvent populist energy is to, you know, is to enact policies that give people enough of what they need and want on those on that most fundamental level so that the, the the sort of grievances that metastasize into populism never come to be yeah i agree and i i'd like to come back to that at the end of this episode because yeah. i i that's what i see andrew yang is as trying to do um but before we get into that let's talk a little bit more about this so so would you say would you agree with me then that that the the basic premise like the 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 fundamental narrative of populism is 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 false that it's a, a myth i would say that populists generally tend to misconstrue the popularity of their of their specific proposals and they do this generally by citing polls that ask much more generalized questions than the things they're proposing. Like for example, people will cite polls that show a clear majority of the country wants universal healthcare of some kind. Then they'll then take that and then pivot into, well, most people support Bernie Sanders' specific proposal, Medicare for all. Oh yeah, and they usually do it with this sleight of hand where they're like, well, that's the only kind of, it's the only kind of universal healthcare. So it's like, you take something that that most people can agree on, and then the reason they agree on it really is because it's vague. And then they pivot that into, well, therefore, are specific policy proposals popular? And the minute you get into specifics, the popularity of anything drops like a rock. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I can tell you're hesitant to completely come along with me there, so I'm going to push a little bit harder. And if you know, we can agree to disagree if that's what happens. But you know, it's kind of like the way you know. Basically, what I'm hearing you say, correct me if I'm wrong, is talk about policies that are supported by a majority of the population, right? And in the context of, and you know, if they don't yet support it, then you're not ready for the legislating stage yet. You're still in the persuasion stage. 
Right. right? And in a, um, a, a constitutional republic such as we have, and people forget the United States is big, right? So like, you know, <laughs> there's like the EU, <laughs> right? And there's the United yeah. States. And our yeah, federal I mean, government actually has a lot more power than the EU does. And people in people in Europe still resent all the power of the EU because they see it as an undemocratic institution. Right. Um, you know, which I, you know, take, I, I, I don't necessarily agree with that characterism characterization per se but i think i understand you know it's kind of the basic same basic idea it's like do you want what your state or your country's people want or do you want what like some bigger group of people i mean if if you take into its logical conclusion um if you were to turn the whole globe into a democracy do we really want to let saudi arabia vote about women's rights and so forth and have it impact us i mean i think that these are legitimate concerns to have there is a reason why our founders decentralized our government so even in a even in a constant or especially in a constitutional re- republic like ours, having a majority of people support it, that's not going to cut it either because the popular vote doesn't matter. You need to have a majority of people in a majority of states vote for senators who specifically support that policy, which means that not only do they have to support that policy, but they have to support it enough to prioritize it in their choice of senator. And then a majority of people in a majority of congressional districts have to do the same thing with their congressional representative. Mm -hmm. Needless to say, that is hard. And by the time it happens, probably more like 70% of the population supports the policy. And if you find that process really laborious, well, that's for a reason. It's because Mm -hmm. once it's enshrined at the federal level, that is a, that is that you're, you're, you're now forcing it on the other 30% or 40% or, or or 49% of the population in the country that disagrees with you, right? So, you know, you could also, you always have the option of starting at the local level by all means, you know, like Mitt Romney did with Romney Care in Massachusetts before Obama did Obamacare, which is essentially the same thing, right? Um, So long story short, we already have a word for people who believe that, you know, a majority should get their way, Right. With certain protections of constitutional individual rights, et cetera, it's right. called liberal right. democracy, not populism, right? If you believe right. that the that popular policies should be enacted by the government, that makes you a Democrat with a small d, not a populist. Mm-hmm. A person only becomes a populist when they when they start feeding this myth that the people, right, all kind of want the same thing, and therefore democracy is just this like mess in the way of what we obviously should be doing it hints the need for uh the strong man that you pointed out yeah i mean it, it's it's kind of like a you know there's a tactic in sales that's called just like assume consent and you know you just proceed forward as though the customer just just wants to buy it and it's kind of like what they're doing with populism you just assume everyone agrees with you and then you just sort of like you know barge your way forward and and just kind of like take 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 people by storm before they can really think twice about what's happening. Yeah. And there's another element to this that you also brought up scapegoating, right? Part of the reason scapegoating is appealing is because as you said, it's about blaming somebody other than yourself. You know, if we live in a real democracy and the policies aren't working, then regular voters have some responsibility for that because regular voters are the people who elected the people who instituted those policies. Right. So again, um, if you really believe in democracy, then you ought to be looking in the mirror when you're trying to figure out what the problem is. Now, I'm not saying just you, but like you and your fellow voters. And again, if they don't agree with you, it's persuasion time. That's an important part of the democratic process, right? So scapegoating is about um, absolving people of personal responsibility 
um, uh, in the democratic system, not just not just personal responsibility and the pull yourself up by your bootstraps way, but right, in right. the in the sense of like being accountable for your own actions in our democracy, right? You know, a lot of people for whom populism has an appeal are people who have been checked out and not voting for a long time, right? Right. <laughs> so those people uh, are yeah. very, very, very much personally responsible for any problems that we have in our society because they were shirking their responsibility as a citizen to vote all this time. And now they're going to come out of the blue like, oh, you know, I just expected everybody else to solve it for me. And now I'm so mad that you guys didn't do what I wanted you to do, even though I wouldn't do the thing that would have influenced what I wanted you to do. But, yeah, be believing yourself to be powerless it, it like lifts a burden psychologically off of you because it means you don't need to do anything. And, and it means that, you know, all, all the answers are simple. I mean, people get from populism, even though not all populists are conspiracy theorists, of course, people get from it the same thing that people get from conspiracy theorists. It, it's, it's, it's a way to simplify analyzing the world where you can just easily identify and point to some group of people that are just ruining it all. Uh, and the, you know, the problem is, you know, there's that famous quote that, you know, like the, the most scary thing is the world is rudderless and no one's, at, you know, no one's really in charge and everything is just kind of, you know, a million moving parts that nobody can really keep track of interacting with each other in ways that, you know, you would need like a super, a super AI to be able to analyze. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not as satisfying of an answer, but reality is always more complicated than than people initially think it is yeah and i think it's important to point out that you know sometimes real conspiracies happen and those are called conspiracies we only right. use the the pejorative conspiracy theory when we're talking about something that there is not evidence for and people choose to believe in because it gives them this kind of like emotional sense of power over their own lives or whatever right you're right that's what and, it is yeah and like you know generally with conspiracy you know with any kind of conspiracy in general my rule of thumb is, you know, wait for evidence. Don't don't sign on to anything before there's evidence. And if if you follow that, you're not you're not often going to look like a fool. Yeah, although unfortunately, a lot of people have a strange concept of what counts as evidence. I read it on sure. Breitbart. Isn't that evidence? <laughs> no, no, yeah. I mean, I've, I've oh, I've and 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 that. Russia Today. That's one that blows my mind. But the far left and alt right both love to cite Russia Today. Yeah. These are the same people who call our free press the entire the entire like like journalist profession of the not just the U.S. but the whole Western world. <laughs> Right. They call that, you know, fake news, right? But then they go to literal Russian state propaganda as their preferred source. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Is it just because like um, they're looking for, I, so for quote news that reinforces their preconceptions? Yeah. Well, I mean, you definitely bring up a good point that the standards of evidence for some people are very low. And for people who are into conspiracies, their standard of evidence are basically that they can recognize good evidence from bad because if good evidence exists, they'll they'll go with that. But if there's not good evidence, they'll take whatever flimsy evidence they could find. And if there's no evidence at all, here's the little trick. No evidence equals evidence of a cover-up. So it's just a foolproof system where it's completely unfalsifiable, which is how you know it's irrational. Yeah, it's essentially what it is, is their epistemology is, does this suggest that the conspiracy is true? 
Okay, then it's real evidence. Does this suggest that the conspiracy is not true? Uh, well, then it's fake news. It's just like how like Trump's standard clearly is. Does this piece of information make me look good? Okay, then it's yeah. real. Does it make me look bad? Then it's fake news. It's that simple. Yeah, I, I, I call that gastroepistemology. It's just gone with the gut <laughs> That's great. I'm going to remember that gastroepistemology. I love it. So I wanted to say a little bit more about the relationship of scapegoating that you brought up, right? Sure. Um, you know, because we keep talking about the people, right? And 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 the oversimplification of the fact that, and you know, I'm not doing this for no reason. The people is something that populists tend to say a lot, right? True. Enemies yeah. of the people, right? Um, the people, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. So, you know, it, when you talk about the people and you oversimplify it as if they all want the th same thing, it also creates this automatically creates this us then di them dynamic, right? Because right. anybody who is against the people, right, is now the enemy, right? They're not yeah. the real people, right? So, like, if you're a Trump style populist, the the real people are good, God fearing, gun toting, white rural people, <laughs> right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, and to oversimplify slightly, but not really. Yeah. Um, right. And everybody else, they're, they're enemies of the people, those mm -hmm. liberal elites with their hoity toity educations. Um, and of course, brown people, which is, yeah, they're at this point, I don't even know if it's a dog whistle anymore. I think it's, it's yeah. they're just shouting it out loud. It's a bullhorn. Much, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. and when, I mean, and when Trump talks about saying, how he, yeah. when Trump talks about how he won the election and you look at the places he's complaining about. They never actually make any real argument in court because they know that it's bogus. Right. What it actually like their public argument really comes down to if you only count the votes of white people, I want. And if you only count the votes of uneducated white people, I really want. Yeah. No, I mean so so much of it depends and, and I and I agree with what you're saying about, you know, the 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 generalizing of everyone believes what we're saying isn't it definitely easily ties into scapegoating. And so much of the lack of substance and specifics just relies on the fact that the average voter is very low information. They don't need to cite stuff because they know people won't click the link anyways. You know, and even if they did, they wouldn't understand it, you know. So I mean it's unfortunate, but the the general lack of civic engagement and, you know, political literacy and media literacy in the country totally makes it much easier for populists to just really say whatever they want to say. Yeah. So there is one sense in which a populist genuinely is um, kind of tapping into the popular imagination. And that is that rather than doing what a liberal politician does, but in liberal, I don't mean left wing, I just mean like left, right, center, right. believe in liberalism, Right. Liberalism is a pluralistic idea. It believes in democracy, which is a pluralistic idea. It, you know, liberalism doesn't doesn't claim to have the utopian solutions to every policy proposal. It simply is basically just a commitment to respecting your fellow human beings and having a civil discussion with them, frankly. Right. So what a liberal politician does is it's asking people to, you know, it's trying to appeal to the better angels of people's people's nature and in, in Abraham Lincoln's terminology. Right. That's mm. what it is. It's saying, like, look. You know, we have to work together. That's what Joe Biden's trying to do right now. Like, we don't all agree with each other, but we're we're all Americans. We need to come together and solve our problems together. No one person's going to be perfectly happy, right? So a liberal, um, in that sense, has to ask people to step up and do the hard work of actually having nuanced conversations, actually being informed, et cetera, right? Whereas the populist is saying like, look, you can be as lazy as you want and you can and you can blame your problems on other people and don't worry about it. I'll just solve it all for you, 
right? And I think that that clearly does have an appeal to a large segment of the population. Um, and th- there are a lot of people who would who, who who you know back in the day would have been monarchists, basically. Which I, which is really funny yeah. to say because you know you talk to a typical far leftist or alt right populist today, and they will be like, "No, I don't want a king," but they really do, don't they? If you listen to what they say, they really do. I, I mean, if you're if you're looking for someone else to basically do everything and and shoulder everything for you, there basically isn't a whole lot of difference other than what you choose to call it. You know, there's no difference, <laughs> none, zero. President for life right. <laughs> is king, right? And what did Trump say about that? Oh, we should try that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but don't worry. He was just kidding. Yeah, no, he, he was wasn't. just joking. <laughs> no, he wasn't. He was not kidding. Come on. Mm. There's the, the Trump might joke about a lot of things, but when it comes to his own insatiable appetite for, for power and dominance, he's dead serious. Um. So what, 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 and then of course on the, you know, on, on the populist left, and I, by the way, Jamie, as a person left of center, I'm really glad mm-hmm. that you did, that you pointed out that it is a problem on the left too. You know, Bernie Sanders kind of does the same thing when he says, and I'm get, I'm not saying Sanders is as bad as Trump. Don't get me wrong. Right. But I think that the word populist does apply to him to a certain degree. And, and it to does. the extent that it does apply to him, it's, it's a problem. But you know, like when he says people want universal health care or I'm sorry, you're right. Most people do not everybody, of course, but a majority does want universal health care. But when he pe- when he says that people want single payer, what he means mm-hmm. is the people want single payer. And for him, being a leftist, the pe- and and significantly to your left, like an actual socialist, for mm-hmm. him, the people is the proletariat, right? If you if you only count the votes of the proletariat, <laughs> it's kind of the same thing, isn't it? It's the same as you only count the votes as white of white people. I mean, it's definitely it's rich people. Rich people are not middle. part of the people, right? And if you're middle class, that makes you rich. If you ask the average socialist, yeah, I mean, it's it's a similar way of viewing the world of just sort of chopping up society and 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 dividing everything up like that. And very amusingly, both the alt right and the far left love to scapegoat the Jews for some reason. Gosh, the poor Jews just like they take it from both sides, man. If for some reason, all conspiracies, like it's like all roads lead to the Jews, you know, it's, it's the craziest <laughs> thing ever. Yeah, like Jer- Jer- Jeremy Corbyn got Boris Johnson elected because he's such an anti-Semitic prick that a lot of Brits were just like, I can't, I'm sorry, I just can't vote for that guy. <laughs> you know, it's, it's such a, like a. I I never understood what the what the appeal is for most. I mean, I mean, I guess, the, you know, the appeal is the same as the appeal for, you know, being able to just point your finger at someone and, and take off the responsibility. But it's just crazy that this one specific group somehow seems to just keep getting it over and over and over and over. It is pretty interesting. I, I'd love to have um, an expert on like Jewish history or or anti-Semitism on sometime because I yeah. wish I I wish I understood it. It's very. I mean, very I went to Jewish schools my whole life. You know, my parents are are ultra Orthodox, Hasidic, and I went to Jewish private schools first through twelfth grade, and I can't even really fully understand it. It still doesn't really make sense to me. You know. Yeah, and, and not only that, but the actual the the complaints about them are very some. They are conspiratorial, right, on both yeah. sides. So if you listen to 
Now, of course, I'm not saying all alt-right or all far-left people do this, but we know that it's out there and it's prominent. It's 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 a it's a huge problem. Um, but yeah, you look at like far left populists will, will basically, you know, the world is run by the Rothschilds and all this stuff, right? And it's the evil banking, the global Jewish, but basically, you know, Jews are bad because they're rich and successful if you're on the left. Right. And then if you're on the quote alt right, it's sort of the same thing, except you don't, you don't, you don't. You know, you're you're for some reason you're only applying that hatred Mm -hmm. of rich successful people if you're a rich successful Jew, right? Yeah. I I guess I guess the main difference there is like the alt right wants socialism for white people only or something like that. You know, because like they it's great it's great if uh if um a white person is successful, but you know if it's a if it's a well Jews I guess nowadays you'd consider them white for for a long time. Yeah, it's awesome. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's there there was uh, a good. there was a good Thomas Sowell essay called Are, Are the Jews Generic? It's part of his, uh, his book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. And it's basically a historical examination of how middleman minority groups all throughout history have sort of faced similar dynamics as the Jews. It's it's never, it's not a one-to-one correlation, but there's something there in terms of if, if there's a minority in society, but you know, far from being oppressed, the minority in society is doing much better than everyone else. And they're contributing value in ways that are complicated and that you can't easily understand, like, you know, financial stuff. You know, there is a precedent yeah. for all yeah, over that's the also, world. That's also true about the immigrants that Trump demonizes. You know, he talk, talks about yeah. how, um, you know, supposedly they're, 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 there's nothing good about them and we need to, we need to have strict um, merit-based immigration policy. But as it is right now, immigrants are outperforming the average American already. Yeah, I mean, being able to to marshal the resources to to move to America self selects for for the very top tier of people of all these other countries. So we're already it's already a merit. Yeah, and we already make it really damn hard to immigrate legally, which is why so many people feel the need to try to sneak in. Yeah, and and I've read that the the number one source of illegal immigration is people simply just overstaying their visas. Like they visit here and then they just never go back. You mean so they fly like over the, whole, the non-existent wall? Right. So so it's like the whole thing with like it's just you know millions and millions of people running over the border or smuggling themselves in like cargo ships or something. I mean, it's just like that is a tiny percentage of it. Yeah, and and um and the the crisis of the border right now is a bunch of people legally seeking asylum. That's what's going on yeah. there. All yeah. right. Uh, well, this isn't an immigration episode, so we should move on. But it's certainly related to the whole scapegoating demonization thing. I would say. Yeah, yeah. So something else that you said in your blog that stood out to me was, um, populism can only destroy; it cannot build. What do you mean by that? Populism is basically harnessing like the energy of the mob and that kind of energy. It's, it's like a turning a street movement into a political force. You can condemn things and you can tear things down, but you can't, you can't build consensuses. You can't do the necessary work without relinquishing the simplistic and uncompromising worldview that you get with populism. It's just the actual, like, if you actually examine how things really get done in society, it's it's boring. It's bureaucratic. It involves a lot of meetings and involves a lot of negotiations. You just don't, you know, this is not something that populism is really very interested in. 
and if you ever had a, you know, I mean, there's plenty of examples throughout the world. Populist countries are typically, you know, they, there's definitely an increase in dysfunction, and you know that that should be to, you know, it's definitely to be expected. Put it that way. Yeah, yeah, because you you said that they populists have no real plan to achieve their goals. Now, I, I I take that to mean not that they necessarily have no policy proposals because they right. tend to, right? Like Sanders and Trump both right. have specific policy proposals. Again, being very careful to say I'm not saying that Sanders is as bad as Trump, right? Do I think Sanders would have incited an insurrection on the Capitol? No, I do not, right? So like, you know, Trump's a very low bar that Sanders happily jumps over. <laughs> Right. For sure. But for they sure. do. They do both. They they are populist to a certain extent um, and they do both have policy proposals. So I don't think you mean no policy proposals. It's more like no, no, it's no. easy. It, it's it's like, easy to throw out ideas. But what's your actual plan for passing them through the legislative process? That's the part that seems to be missing. If you engage most populists in conversation and they begin to articulate their wider vision for society beyond a couple specific policies. Like if you talk to a Trump supporter, they'll talk about the border wall and they'll talk about, you know, trade policy with China, a couple other things. Nobody really believes those things are going to transform the country. So when you start asking them specifics of what exactly is entailed in, quote, taking the country back, what is entailed in overthrowing the system, that's basically the last you hear from them. I mean, if they're annoying you, ask them for specifics and they'll F right off. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe this is a situation where Sanders is a little better than Trump as well. But no, I do yeah. see an element of that with him, because even though his policies are much more carefully thought right. out and detailed yeah. than than Trump's, um, he still does seem to kind of skirt over the fact that you can't pass your policy. Like, it's not going to pass. <laughs> You know, like, yeah. you don't have the votes in Congress. Right. I, and his implication seems to be, well, I'll just bully everybody into voting for it. But that's not good. Right. Those people were elected yeah. by constituents who maybe don't support that policy. No, I mean, you know, had Bernie Sanders won the, the primaries and gone on to win the presidency four years from now, his supporters would be a hell of a lot less enthusiastic about him it would it would look a lot like oh no he'd be a know, sellout corporate yeah. shill fake traitor blah 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 you know it, it, it's funny because i mean we all know that's to, true right intuitively we just know that's what would happen because he wouldn't no, i mean it for sure people already hate him just because he endorsed biden how dare he yeah how no. dare he how dare he try to stop the fascist takeover of america <laughs> What a what a jerk! <laughs> By the way, thank you, Bernie Sanders. I shit on you a lot, but I really appreciate that you did that. That was the right thing. You, you put right. country above yourself, and that is something that Donald Trump is physically incapable of doing. True, and 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 I just want to to uh, clarify here. I think there's like a continuum of populism. So just because two people can both be considered populist doesn't mean they're 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 on the same end of the spectrum, you know. Bernie is definitely towards the more moderate populist end than someone like Trump. Uh, but but I do still think he's on that landscape. I yeah, I, I think that's very well put. And I agree completely. That's why I, I'm very careful to say I don't think that they're equivalent. Right. Um, but that yeah. said, I think to whatever extent you you are toying with populism, that is a sign that you're probably doing something wrong. Yeah, it's just a it's it's a kind of a lazy I mean, 
it's lazy for for an individual voter and it's it's a little bit less flattering for a political leader because they should know better yeah that's a good way of putting it and um uh boy yeah and if if they don't know better then they shouldn't be a leader and if they do know better they really shouldn't be a leader so I think we're agreeing about yeah. that. So yeah, that segues yeah. into um, – I said we would circle around back to this at the end. So as our final topic here, um, what about the, all the people who say Andrew Yang is a populist? What do you think about that? I could see where they're coming from. I personally wouldn't use that word to describe him, but I think that Andrew Yang comes closer than anyone I've seen in politics to modeling what a kind of healthier, non-scapegoating pro-intellectual populism might look like, where it hits some of the common themes of populism. You know, it has like the grassroots element. It has this sort of street movement vibe. It's anti-establishment, uh, but, it, but it lacks a lot of the toxic elements. Ultimately, I think though, just the baggage with populism being what it is, I would not feel comfortable calling Andrew Yang's movement populist. I, I, I think it should have a new, a new term if you're going to call it something on its own. But I mean, I think, I think that sort of politics can give populists enough of what they want to be happy with that instead of populism, because ultimately, I think that vision for the country is more popular, and I think it can bring people together, and it can actually get stuff done more, and, and it is a kind of way to compromise with all these different sectors of society in a way that the, the extremes are always going to be pissed off at Yang. And it's funny because, you know, the extremists from every faction hate him. But the more moderate you are, whatever else you are, you tend to like Yang more. Uh, and the country is more moderate than it is extreme. So, you know, I think he can, he can peel off enough populists, that kind of mentality and style can peel off enough populists to, you know, kind of neuter populism in America, I think. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I mean, obviously we're only speculating, but one thing we can do is we can go straight to the source, right? Now, I think understandably, if you look at, um, you know, something that, that Yang says in a soundbite on TV or the radio here or there, right? Uh, you can certainly find things which out of context sound very populist. And yeah, yeah, I'll be yeah. honest, sometimes um, he has gone, he's, his rhetoric has tipped over into that side to a degree that made me uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, but generally, not very often. Whereas if you look at, uh, you know, his his book, right, The War on Normal People has a, um, I, I, w I wouldn't go so far as to say a populist sounding title, but it certainly is a provocative title um, that suggests that, uh, or, or that, that is clear. Let's, let's, let's say it's clearly designed to appeal to somebody for whom populism has an appeal. No. For sure. For that kind of person, the title of that book and the, and the blurb of that book will prick their ears up for sure. So, but then when they read the book, right, what does it say in there? Well, it says that he's worried about the rise of Donald Trump. Um, he's worried about the rise of somebody even worse than Donald Trump someday, right? right. Um, and he recognizes that, that this um, resurgence of extremism in the United States happens because of the fact that there that populism has an appeal to people and populism has an appeal to people because they're they you know they're they're facing difficulties in their lives. So right. 
his argument essentially, and my 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 take on this, and I don't know if you would go go this go this far or not, Jamie. You can tell me. I personally think Yang is an anti-populist, um, but I think his approach to it is not to rail against populism because he recognizes that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. His approach to and, and don't get me wrong, I think I think he also genuinely wants to help people. These two things are not mutually exclusive, right? right? Um, but it seems to me that he recognizes that a lot of institutions that he loves and that he wants to preserve mm-hmm. like democracy and capitalism and the rule of law and constitutional protections of individual liberties against majoritarian rule, et cetera. Right. He wants to preserve liberal democracy. And the way to do that is to de-radicalize populists in exactly the way you just said, which is like attract them to his movement and then redirect all that rage in a more product productive liberal direction. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how he would characterize himself. I think he he wisely tends to stay away from labels. But the end result of his style of politics is functionally anti-populist because it addresses enough of the underlying concerns that make people disgruntled and desperate and aggrieved enough to turn to populism in the first place. And it addresses those. And it kind of like prevents populism. It's like a populist like vaccine. Like it doesn't cure it necessarily. It'll cure some people, but not all, but it'll prevent new populists because yeah. people yeah, will the, never the, the, start it, sniffing it, around for it. It's like the New Deal. That's what the New Deal did. It's yeah, the new New yeah. Deal, right? And and actually my my biggest criticism of, of Yang's movement so far and of Yang himself is that I worry that he um he succeeded at attracting a lot of would-be populists or even people who still identify as populists. Mm-hmm. But part of the reason he didn't win the primary, and the, honestly, this it, I shouldn't be too rough on him because his odds of winning were always very low. <laughs> right, <laughs> so he right. could have done everything right and still lost, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think he would have done better and had a better chance of winning if he had managed to actually make that case. And in his book, he does. But, you know, how many people voting in the primary read his book, right? Yeah. Um. And a lot of people who read his book miss this point. So you're right. We don't know exactly how he'd describe himself. We, we, we know we, et cetera, but we do know that in his book, he makes that case that I just said, and that does, you just yeah. said, right. He explicitly ties it. I decided to run because Donald Trump happened and I want to prevent that from happening again by, by, um, solving these problems that led to his rise. That's about as clear a statement of what, of our thesis as, as he could have made, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he definitely did. Um, and so, I wish I wish that he had made yeah. that case more during the primary. And I recognize it's a it's a bit more nuanced. It's a little harder to make, right? Yeah. But he needed to. He got the votes of of left wing populists. He got the votes of alt right populists. I found very few sort of conservative pro establishment people in the Yang gang. I was kind of the only one. Yeah. There might've been like two others. He needed to get the votes of regular Democrats, right? Cause you can't win a democratic primary, just attracting disaffected Republicans. Right. Okay. And you can't win a democratic primary, just attracting far left people who hate the democratic party. Right. You need to win regular Democrats. And I think the case for regular Democrats is that anti-populist case. True. But, but there's another aspect to it is that Democrats are much more – they're much more institutional. They're much more – like they care a lot more about your resume. They care a lot more about your experience. Being an outsider, that's a, that's a dirtier word 
in the Democratic Party than it is in the Republican Party. So the fact that Yang didn't have any government experience, you know, among the demographics you're discussing, half of them would never consider voting for him, even if they liked the guy for that reason alone. Which many of them did. And if you look at polls, like he actually polled very well. Uh, yeah. Democratic voter said, I like him, but I'm not going to vote I mean, for him. Right. Yeah, I agree. And that, that's, what, that's why I said, even if he had done everything right, he probably still wouldn't have won. And that's why yeah. we're glad that he's probably going to be mayor of New York. Yeah. Yeah. Very exciting. Um, so in, um, in conclusion, one last question for you. Um, in your in your blog, you you have a line where you you called populism authoritarianism masquerading as a call for real democracy. I just think that's a, such a perfectly put statement. Um, there's a lot to unpack there, and you do a bit in yeah. the blog. But now that we're having it in more of a conversational style, um, if somebody listening to this is struggling to understand what you mean by that, and I'll repeat it again uh, to prompt you. What do you mean by authoritarianism masquerading as a call for real democracy? Because one of the one of the problems that feeds into the the disgruntlement that feeds populism is the unresponsiveness of of government. Specifically in America, we have all these checks and balances, which are great, but at the same time, the the pipes have gotten a bit clogged, and things you know, the last twenty years we haven't done a whole lot. There's been a lot of gridlock. Uh, and there, you know, there is a feeling among populists that democracy isn't really working right. And their solution to that ultimately is completely self-defeating because they wanted, they would scale back the checks to a degree that would allow, that would allow for a tyranny essentially. Uh, so, you know, it's a frustration with democracy where the ill thought out remedy is ultimately to destroy democracy entirely if you take it to its logical extreme. So, you know, the way to fix democracy is to fix democracy. It's not to kind of give up on it. And I I don't think enough populists view their views regarding democracy as giving up on it. But it but it is giving up on democracy to, you know, have a strongman type leader with very few checks and balances. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and you know, I I can certainly understand being frustrated at the fact that the that there's gridlock, right? But yeah. the problem is they their proposed solution would only exacerbate gridlock, and in fact, it is exacerbating gridlock. You know, the way to unclog the pipes is to foster an environment where the two coalitions are encouraged and rewarded for working together. Right. But populist rhetoric, because of the fact that it scapegoats the other side, because of the fact that it blames all their problems on the evil enemy on the other side, because it's divisive, it actually increases polarization, which is only going to lead to more gridlock. And then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy where they cause the gridlock and then say, well, because of the gridlock, I need you to just, you know, give me all the power. This this comes back to the same point, you know, the earlier point that populism can destroy, but it can't build. It takes real problems in society that exist, and it it just approaches it from a standpoint of just pure frustration. And you just you you can't solve anything by just frustratedly lashing out at it. You you know you have to take the time to dig into it and get into the weeds and do the you know boring and dull and unsexy work of untangling some of the knots and fixing it in a way that doesn't cause instability. 
Yeah, you know, if Trump had put half the effort into actually working within the democratic process that he put Mm -hmm. into trying to destroy democracy, he might have actually achieved his goals. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's I suppose we should be thankful for that element of populism that it's almost sort of designed to hamstring itself in certain ways. Uh, until it doesn't though yeah. and that's until scary it doesn't, thing, right? which is why i'm yeah. so grateful that there are well-spoken people like you out there jamie making the case for why you are not a populist and why frankly none of us should be um <laughs> i'm gonna close out by thanking another patron i've been doing this lately on the public feed um chad montgomery has given us a hamilton and a lincoln so far so thank you chad And uh, by the way, I have started recording more uh, patron-only episodes. About every other episode I record now is a patron-only episode. So if you would like to get more Moving Forward, you can go support us. Go to movingforwardpod.com where you can find our Patreon and sign up and you'll get access to the patron-only feed and you'll get twice the episodes. Jamie, thank you again for coming on and I'm going to give you the last word. Anything you want to say to our listeners? Uh, well, if you want to uh, read more of my writing, just go to americandreaming.substack.com. I publish uh, one article every Monday, 9 a.m. Eastern time. So organized and professional. I definitely recommend it. It's a great blog. Uh, I, 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 I read it myself. All right. And as we say, moving forward is our gumbo. Thank you very much for listening to the Moving Forward podcast. Together, through these conversations, we are all working to ensure that the Humanity First movement keeps moving forward. If you haven't yet, please visit our website at movingforwardpod.com, where you can support our Patreon. We will use those funds to advertise, to grow our audience so more people hear these important conversations. Thank you very much.